What's up, everybody? Welcome to Beer People. I'm Matt Prince. And I'm Chris Orn. And we're Beer, Beer People. People. Oh, you threw that one out. You, like, threw a curveball. And I, I did. Went, I thought it was a fastball, and you threw a curveball. So I, and that was like a big strikeout. Big strikeout. Big there, strikeout. Yeah, I was, really, I was really trying to work on my baritone. Oh, uh, well, Chris, wait, Chris, Chris, that's bass. Baritone's like in the middle. Oh, I didn't Bar- know that. Baritone's where you're at right now. Bass is down here. Tenor's up here. Oh, and yeah. what, what's above that? Soprano, alto. <laughs> you're not gonna. Can you pitch those for us? And alto. Alto. Oh, alto is lower than spring. Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah, saxophones. Yeah. Sopranos, right. you know, your higher female singers. Alto is like your lower female singers. Tenors, your higher. Or any gender. Singers. Yeah, yeah. No, of course. I- I'm literally thinking of being in choirs. I actually, <laughs> you know, to to fall back on that in middle school. This is slightly embarrassing, but not. I sang male soprano for a, a long time. That's what they called it. They were like, okay, so we have our sopranos, we have our altos, we have our tenors and basses, and we have our male soprano. Singular. Yeah, that was just me singing yeah. a falsetto because my voice hadn't like dropped yet. It, it's cool, but you know, pretty much being able to decide my own notes, you know, was fun. I can understand how at the time, like you're singled out and therefore it feels like an embarrassing point. Yeah. Yeah, but it's almost kind of like male nurse now. Like we sh- we can just drop the male. Yeah, just right? a nurse. Exactly. I was just actually they call um, a male who is a tenor who sings in falsetto a counter tenor because so like, you have to count the whole time. Like someone's going one, two, three. I four. think you're. I think you're counter to what else is going on. It's like a very distinct, like there are certain um, arias and solos and songs that are actually written for counter tenors and they're very beautiful, but oh. they're very rare. Yes, I remember um, listening to um, a guy in college, Tyler Van Kirk singing a counter tenor solo and I never heard it before. And I was like, wow, if only I knew about counter tenors before sixth grade i would have embraced that just call me a counter tenor and i'll feel like god's gift to music but i mean i'll tell you what although i don't know what you're referring to i bet beer people mike in colorado and lauren hughes uh whose background is in music i bet they know exactly what you're talking about and we've mentioned him on other episodes but beer person nick who i went to college with is a fantastic singer and uh, you were at my wedding. He is the he was the cantor at my wedding. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah, really fantastic singer Can vouch. as well. Yes, yes. So uh, and and we went to college together. So he he also heard this counter tenor um, song, and uh, so he he can definitely vouch for me on that one. We're gonna have to redo our intro. I'm Matt Prince. I'm Chris Horn, and we're Beer singing people. people singing la 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 la. Uh, well, <laughs> that's that's Matt- after a certain amount of beers, Chris. <laughs> Our whole interview today is going to be done in song, right? Like Les Mis. Oh, yeah. This is a rock opera now. We are 100% opera, rock opera. And maybe if people like it, we'll just continue, you know, indefinitely. I don't know what kind of singer you are, Chris. I've never heard you sing. 
Uh, I don't know that I've held the right uh, pitch long enough to determine what kind of singer I am. Well, Chris, that's a good place to start. Just like <laughs> when you didn't drink beer, it was a good place to start. True, true. Yeah, so now I've built you into this amazing beer drinker. I can build you into a adequate singer. I will be your Frankenstein's monster. There we go. There we go. Let's do it. <laughs> so, so Chris, here we are again talking about beer and um, and other very much about beer yes and uh you know uh today's episode is pretty cool because we're kind of skewing it a little bit um we are interviewing um someone who's been in the beer industry for a long time um someone who i interviewed on uh take a shelfie it was a great interview then i've kept up with him since then but also we're going to focus a little bit more on a specific style of beer which is something we haven't done yet, but something that I really think will appear to appeal to the listeners and something that I, I'm excited about because I think I'm going to learn something, a lot of some things. Well, we didn't do it as much in season one, but this season, because of the feedback from the listeners, um, where we heard you both want to hear more about the people and also like learn some facts about beer, you'll notice that the first two episodes of this season, we focus on a lot of Cezanne and like European styles um, with Dan from Forest of Maine. And then tonight we're going to really kind of hone in on IPAs. They're a genre of beer that I think brought a lot of people into liking beer once they reached a certain point of like hazy, juicy, etc. cetera. Um, I know that benefited me when I was first starting to drink beer. And Mike LaRosa, our guest today, um, has been a very, like, a pretty prominent person in the IPA brewing scene um, since, I mean, for several years now and with a couple different breweries. And um, it'll be fun to learn more about not just his own background, but also the style. Yeah. And, you know, it was really important for me as a beer drinker, as someone who's enjoyed a lot of IPAs, totally dive into the, um, you know, that genre, that style, um, mostly because it's become so big. Like the spectrum of IPA has grown. Um, whereas at the beginning of the story, it really feels like the beginning, you know, you're really talking about like, um, you know, Anchor Brewing out in San Francisco, brewing their, you know, take on the American hoppier ale, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, that kind of got the ball rolling on these hoppier beers. And then all of a sudden we have IPAs, which is a, a style that dates, you know, way back when beer was packaged from uh, England and it was sent to India and they had to hop it with certain hops so that it could withstand the long journey to India, which at that time was an English colony. And um, that style has just grown exponentially. Like, so then you're thinking about like the English IPA, less carbonated, more mild. I'm just so excited to dive into the more American, you know, the American varietals of IPA, which as we know, as avid IPA drinkers, there are so many. Yeah, there are. For the record, in researching for interviewing Mike LaRosa, I did try to look up the origin. And what I'm finding is that no one can quite verify that the India, that that's exactly the reason like the hops were increased, but it's suspected and is a like really likely explanation. So I'm, I'm cool with 
like just that's the narrative I'm going to have in my head. Yeah, I'm going to I've gone with that like the entire time I've been a beer drinker and um, I would feel really dumb if I found <laughs> out now that that wasn't the case because I've like used that as a nice little uh, anecdote that I use when I'm talking to beer drinkers. Oh, hey, you've never heard of IPA? Oh, well, you know. Well, here it is. Here it is. And um, but it, it, it's not a stretch to say Mike has been in some of those rooms where it happens when it comes to the IPA and it'll be interesting to hear about those tales and um, how certain things came to be. And uh, I think it's going to be a really, really cool interview. Yeah, it certainly will be. And one note for the listeners that um, Mike in throughout his career, uh, he spent a little bit of time working with tired hands and we asked him his comfortability of talking about um, different issues happening in the beer community right now. And um, tired hands has, been in the news a little bit um, for some recent things that have been happening, especially related to um, Brienne Allen and um, the role of their um, one of their founders and owners who um, last summer stepped away from um, operations after some allegations came to light about um, like misconduct in the workplace and who has now returned to um, like working there full time. And so we're actually going to, though, out of respect for Mike's former coworkers and employees, not discuss tired hands um, as it pertains to all of those issues during this interview. And also, um, he also went out of his way to say also to his current employers and employees, because he wants to make sure that he focuses on his business and his, you know, what he's built at his space and which is very important. So, um, of course, you know, the conversations are meant to be had, but we are, you know, more than happy to accommodate and want to make all of our guests feel comfortable and not put them in an awkward position. Yeah, absolutely. So it's going to be a great interview. Let's welcome Mike LaRosa. All right, Mike LaRosa, welcome to Beer People. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us. It is an honor and a privilege, Mike, to have the architect of the delicious beer that I am sipping on right now on this podcast. I'm drinking hammock and this is a great beer. I appreciate that, but I'm just a man. (laughs) (laughs) This morning uh, when Chris and I were together, I handed him that can. I was like, Chris, don't go out and buy a new trail beer for the recording i have it for you oh, but then nice. i was like we can't both drink hammock because i have plenty of hammock in my fridge but i was like i'll drink shades so yeah, i'm man. drinking shades which is there are three that i look forward to every year hammock the shades, most. and goggles the most but yeah. hammock shades and goggles are the three that i'm like i see it yes i grab it i grab plenty of them you are a uh, you're a citron nut then. Yes, yeah. <laughs> there's there's heavy yes. Cit- there's heavy citron in all three of those beers. I am a, I am a citron nut, and they all yeah. uh, you know get me, and they're all perfect beers. So I was pleased to see it on my shelf this past week. So we're two very happy beer drinkers right now. Nice, <laughs> glad I can help. Yeah, that is for sure. And Mike, it is great to have you on. Also, not just because you made this beer. Um, but because we want to learn about you and your experience getting into the industry and all the work that you've done, in particular, listeners have picked up on your work in IPAs. Um, but before we talk about that, can you tell us a little bit about how you 
got into beer in general and a little bit about what your career path has been to this point? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I started uh, homebrewing with my dad. I was about 17 years old. My parents were um, very relaxed as far as alcohol and beer is concerned in our household. Very uh, European approach um, to the dinner table. You know, if I wanted to have a beer, I could have a beer at dinner. If I wanted to try a glass of wine, I could try a glass of wine or, you know, a cocktail or whatever. And my parents are both um, very big beer drinkers. They always have been, at least as long as I can remember. My, um, my mom is a staunch uh, Coors Light drinker. And my uh, dad drank a lot of uh, available craft beer for his time. So I remember being um, at the house and seeing a lot of like, Newcastle Brown Ale. Uh, we grew up in, or I grew up in Downingtown. So victory was uh, coming up at that point. So my dad used to, as a kid, I remember going to victory when it was like maybe the whole tasting room or restaurant might've been a thousand, 2000 square feet. And there was pool tables there. And my dad would drink hop wallop or hop devil or whatever was really hoppy and available at that time. And I would have a root beer and we'd play pool. So, um, my dad was a home brewer when I was a child, like a, a young child, a toddler, baby, and uh, sort of fell out of it. And then by the time that I was 17, I was like, you know, having beer with them. I was like, this is kind of cool, like as a flavor um, and as a, as a beverage, like, can you make this at home? And my dad kind of just was like, yeah, I used to do this. And we, we did it together. So fast forward a little bit. I go to... Um, I go to college. I went to uh, Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania, and uh, I was going for a degree in environmental studies. And I was just thinking about my time homebrewing with my dad and trying to find a career that um, would keep me out from behind a desk. And I was like, well, brewing was fun with my dad. Maybe I can find a job at a brewery and, and see what that's like. So I called every brewery within about an hour and a half of uh, Rock Bottom, or I'm sorry, and, and out of within an hour and a half of Albright and nobody really responded to me until my dad made a connection to the brewer at rock bottom, uh, in King of Prussia, who at the time was, uh, Brian McConnell. So he had agreed to do an internship with me <clears throat> and I, uh, worked with Brian for about two years after about three months of my internship, he hired me on as a, an assistant brewer after I begged and pleaded and annoyed him. And, uh, over the, those, two years, they were probably some of the most influential uh, brewing years of my life, you know, learning how to cellar and transfer beer and how to brew. My foundation was really all from Brian McConnell and, and the way he uh, approached beer. Um, so I graduate college, uh, rock bottom at the time didn't have an opportunity for, for me to, to move full time. So I, um, moved over to it was basically a startup at this point uh was saucony creek in kutztown and i brewed with them in their first year i um was the architect of uh maple mistress if you've had their pumpkin beer which was very popular in its heyday i don't i don't know how it does now i moved from um saucony creek after about a year to maniunk for a short stint i was kind of like a hired on as a short-term brewer there um, as they were changing over their system from the original uh, system they bought 20 some odd years ago to a new one that 
hadn't been through a flood yet. I left there and I was the head brewer at Kane Brewing Company uh, in Ocean, New Jersey, and which is right next to Asbury Park. I was with him during a really uh, important year of expansion for him. We went from about 3,000 barrels a year to six to 7,000 barrels a year. Um, I was headhunted from there. I got picked up by Tired Hands. I was the first uh, brewery manager for the Fermenteria space, and I built that business from being just the brew cafe into uh, brew cafe, the Fermenteria, and the dispensary, which was his offsite production facility. I left there. I kind of burnt out uh, after two years there and growing that business exponentially two years in a row. And I started a uh, consulting company. So I started uh, helping breweries move from being um, just a, a business plan into full production. And I did that for about, well, I did that full time. I still sort of do it now. Did that for about two years. And during that time, New Trail was one of my clients. So I got hired on as their consultant and, uh, by the time that we made beer for the first time, uh, my partners offered me partnership in the business. So, and then there's the story of Neutral. <laughs> it's really interesting to hear how your career has kind of weaved its path through the brewing industry, especially in the uh, Eastern part of Pennsylvania and now working towards central Pennsylvania and Williamsport, um, hearing familiar names like Brian McConnell because um, he's had a, a big footprint in this area of brewing. And, you know, you grow growing up near Victory and having very similar um, beers available to you that I've had. So it's like a very familiar story. Obviously, I'm not a brewer, but hearing kind of the breweries you worked at, I'm thinking like those are the breweries I drank at. Like I went to Rock Bottom and especially right after I turned 21, my friends loved going there because that was a good central place for a lot of my college friends. And sure, $2 beer Thursdays too. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, I lived on Cricket uh, and was, you know, right down the line for the cans. Yep. You know, I could see it from my apartment. And, yeah. you know, so it's really interesting for me to hear all that. And it's really cool just to see your journey and how you've gotten to, uh, gotten a new trail, making the uh, incredible beer you're making out there now. Yeah, I mean, it was all, you know, it's, 12 13 years now I've been doing this I guess and it's been a wild ride you know it seems like yesterday that I was just like the kid that wanted to like lick Brian McConnell's boots and like do whatever it would take to get into the industry <laughs> and uh yeah it's just wild to be here yeah I think and Matt correct me if I'm wrong I think you're also the first person we've talked to who was pretty much born and raised in the beer industry where that was what you started out in and what you're currently in. I'm curious if that, it sounds like when you went to college, that wasn't necessarily the plan. You were interested in environmentalism and then brewing kind of combined a couple of different interests. Have you ever pictured like, you know, what would my pathway be if I weren't, if I didn't end up in the beer industry? It's really hard to say now, I'll, I'll say. I mean, when I was, you know, 19 and going to college, I thought for sure that I was going to be the guy that changed the world, right? That I was going to fix global warming or whatever, just very bright eyed and bushy tailed about um, how everything was going to work. And through all that, you know, I, I don't, looking back on it now, I guess, I really have no idea if I'd be as happy as I am today, if I'd entered another industry. 
Um, I, I'm extremely happy with my career choice. I'm extremely happy with my path. I joke about it now, now that I have all these skills, because like as much as I am a brewer, I'm also the guy that has rigged tanks. Um, I've done masonry work. I've done electrical work. Like I find more enjoyment working in my, with my hands. And I, I guess I just didn't realize that at 19 years old. I knew that I didn't want to sit at a desk, but I thought for sure I was going to be taking stream samples and, you know, lecturing on whatever, or, you know, being a part of the environmental political movement. And that's, you know, now not even really a, a part of what I do day to day. I mean, New Trail itself is extremely centered on the betterment of the outdoors and outdoor recreation, which is a part of, you know, my passions. But as far as like the environmental policy or the environmental science of it all, it's, it's all, you know, it's all just brewing science to me. So. Well, it's really cool that you've been able to amalgamate those things. I mean, you're talking about wanting to um, Sorry, I need you're, to interrupt for a sec. Yeah, because I said the word amalgamate like four times today. Listen, and it's the new lawnmower beer. It's the season yeah, two yeah. version. Amalgamate. Amalgamate. Listen, I'm yeah. a math teacher, so when you find a word that you know how to use and use it the right way, <laughs> yeah. you just abuse it, and that's yeah. what I do. And my wife kids with me all the time. She yeah. knows that there are certain words that I can use, and I use them right. And she, you can see it on her face when she's like surprised. She's like running through a head. Did he use that right? Okay, I'll let him pass. <laughs> yeah. He's a writer and I'm a math teacher so, and we're oh. both horrible at the opposite. So like, oh, wow. I, I, Amalgamate is one that I've, I've clung to for years. And, and what, I is, love what, is she, uh, what does she write for? She's a ghostwriter for a marketing firm. So oh, she cool. gets clients and she does a lot of their content and nice. very good at it. But that yeah. sucks for me because she points out all the time how bad I am with the English English language. Here I am, came and said the word English. And well, hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully her vocabulary has, has a, uh, I'm sorry, a little bit of beer burp. Um, <laughs> hopefully yes. her vocabulary has uh, kind of dusted off on you. Yeah. You know, you'd think it would have after the uh, 11 years we've been together, but it just hasn't. And I still, you know, very limited, very limited. Apparently but, select words have. And then yeah. You but I can, dead. I can do some great math. So, you know, <laughs> and I could teach it too. So that's, that's really what I lean on. Um, I'm giving you a hard time. I do the same thing. You can carry yeah. on with your life. It is, it is cool though, that you've been able to put those things together and all your, pa- like the passion for the outdoors them. to amalgamate. Right which means to <laughs> yeah, to bring this together and um and it, it shows in the names of your beer the can art and um as we talked about off uh recording your initiatives with the uh with parks in pennsylvania can you talk a little bit about that initiative and how it first started and how it's kind of been established and how it will continue sure yeah so i mean the the state park thing um stems back into our first year we made a beard called uh world's end um and we quickly received a uh c and d for it and world's end for those of you that don't know is probably one of the most gorgeous state parks in pennsylvania and it's about 40 minutes to an hour north of us here in williamsport um beautiful biking hiking there's gorgeous streams there's cool mountains and valleys and um so we so either way we received a uh, cease and desist for the for the name world's end from uh, i forget what what brewery but um 
they had a beer that had like a nuclear bomb on it saying you know it's the world's end and i was like no 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 like this is world this is like world's end state park it's like supposed to be an ode to this very gorgeous park that's like in our backyard that nobody you know if you know you know sort of situation and um so we're like all right well we'll just call it w-e-s-p world's end state park so about a year or so later we're like oh this is kind of cool we can start highlighting different state parks and what they are and tell people about them now that we're covering more inside of pennsylvania we can tell people about these like really cool hidden gem state parks in their areas so we eventually uh, got a hold of somebody uh, in um, dcnr which pushed us towards uh the pennsylvania parks and forest foundation which is kind of like the uh uh, donation arm for the state parks in Pennsylvania. And we co-opted this idea that we were going to um, basically highlight somewhere between four and six state parks every year. And the proceeds of those cans or a portion of the proceeds of, of those cans and, and kegs that go out are going to go to very specific uh, projects within that state park. So uh, for instance, uh, I'm going to forget, I believe it was Hickory Run State Park we did. Um, we wanted to help cut back on invasive uh, plants and trees there and help with new growth. And then I know we have one coming up soon for uh, Presque Isle State Park, and that one is going to help with the, um, uh, the sandbanks. Uh, Presque Isle is in Erie. It's, on, it's the park that touches uh, Lake Erie. So it's going to help with uh, erosion and stuff like that. We've done ones with parks that help with removing graffiti, um, with planting new trees, with removing invasive species and bugs. So, it, you know, it, it can be whatever the park really needs to do. But we, we want to highlight each of those parks and each of those projects with each of those beers. That's a super cool way of combining your early your own like out of beer interests with your in beer interests. Yeah. I mean, from an early age, I've, I've been into the outdoors. I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout. I was, I was a part of the Boy Scout program. <laughs> yeah. So I'm an Eagle Scout. So I, I spent uh, 12 years working at a Boy Scout camp uh, on the Mason Dixon line, actually in Chester County, um, working on their high ropes course. I was an avid rock climber as a, as a teenager into my young adult years and, as I've gotten more and more into beer and, and weighed more and more rock climbing became a little bit more prohibitive. So I'm a, I'm a big kayaker now. I like kayaking quite a bit. <laughs> nice. Do you have, do you have a favorite hike in Pennsylvania? Ooh, uh, I'd say I enjoy the pinnacle because it's just one of the first hikes I remember doing like first yeah. Vista. The pinnacle wouldn't be too far away from you guys. It's, uh, I haven't right done that one. So it's in Redding. I want to say, pull it up right now so I don't get my information wrong. Also for the listener, just to situate you a little bit. Um, so for those who are not familiar with Pennsylvania, uh, Williamsport is in, and actually Mike, maybe I'll defer to you on this. It appears on a map to be like North Central PA. Is that that's how exact, you would describe that's, it? That's exactly how I would describe it. We, uh, we sit due north of Harrisburg by about an hour and a half. So um, State College is about 45 minutes to an hour west of us. And 
we sit right on 80. So if you're going from New York city to Seattle, you pass us. So, um, it's about a three hour drive from Philadelphia. It is for those exactly a three hour drive from Philadelphia. It's a little over three hours to Pittsburgh. It's an hour and a half to Harrisburg and we're, uh, three hours to New York city. We're about an hour and a half to the Finger Lakes. So we're pretty centrally located to everything. I must help with, uh, collaborations. I know you've you know, when we had you on Take a Shelfie, we talked a lot about the uh, the, the mix packs of collaborations yep. you guys did. That must have made it really easy because there were a lot of, I mean, you were collaborating with all Pennsylvania breweries at that time. Absolutely. Yeah, it was pretty, we're, you know, to everybody, we're, we're pretty close. It makes shipping lanes pretty easy. But to, to go back to my original thing, the, the Pinnacle is in Berks County. It's on the Blue Mountain Ridge and it's part of the Appalachian Mountains. And it is basically on the App- Appalachian Trail. Awesome. Can you yeah. describe what like what makes it so great? Is it like a, a beautiful view? Is it a it's a beautiful view at the it? top. Yeah. So at the top, you you get to kind of overlook that like rolling valley, like Berks, beautiful Berks County Valley. Uh, the fall was my favorite time to do it, obviously with the foliage, but um, pretty close to like Hawk Mountain. So you see a lot of like hawks and stuff like that as you look out. That's awesome. Cool, cool place. It's like a, I want to say it's like a three hour loop hike so solid that's a solid hike yeah speaking of just situating us in like the geography of where williamsport is but also in terms of if folks were to go to new trail itself uh because i haven't been there and i look forward to when i finally can go yeah come can on you tell us a little bit about like what do we see you driving up what are the surroundings and then what's it like to walk into the brewery what is it like directly around the brewery as far as yeah the, what's the environment the, around the brewery but then what sure. do we see when you first walk into the yeah brewery? so for those of you that haven't been to williamsport um it's in a uh, it's in a valley so the susquehanna river runs right along uh williamsport williamsport was the uh logging capital of the world uh in the early 1900s we had more millionaires per capita compared to anywhere else in the entire world at that point. So the, the river, um, being that it was coming from uh, north and west from us, ran right along Williamsport, which allowed them to float their logs down and process them in Williamsport. So the, the river runs from, what, down to the Chesapeake, right? The Susquehanna. So um, around us are beautiful Pennsylvania quote unquote mountains it's you know they're they're mountainous for for pennsylvania but they're hills in colorado but um it's beautiful scenery the architecture in williamsport is really cool it's very um classic american architecture but the brewery is itself is situated about a mile mile and a half outside of williamsport in an industrial complex that was originally used in the late 1800s to process lumber so it's a pretty neat um turn of the century type building brick building with uh rafters and uh the bricks themselves have imprints on them from from the manufacturer of the brick company which is kind of cool and rare but uh the the brewery itself is situated in the backside of a uh uh industrial complex that is basically our space now there's a outdoor patio with probably about a hundred seats we have multiple fire fire pits so there's two gas fire pits and a real wood fire pit there's cornhole outside there's food trucks 
And then when you walk into the, the tasting room of the brewery itself, that's where you get to see this very gorgeous old uh, industrial brick building. Awesome. Sounds okay. fucking great. Yeah, it sounds yeah, very, pretty, sounds very pretty cool. Like, yeah, it's pretty cool. Sounds exactly what you want. Yeah. I actually I have a little funny tidbit about the about the building itself. The the landlord, um, when he was showing my business partners, I was consulting for them at the time, the the building, um, he's like asking asking them what they want to do with it. And you know, they're talking about the brewery and they sort of defer to me, like, what are we what are we gonna do with the space? And I like walk in, I'm like, Yeah, this is it. And he's like looking at me like you're weird, like middle twenties kid, like, what do you what do you know about this? I was like, Yeah, we're gonna put We'll put the brewery over here and into, into this room and then like this room which is like the the brick building portion of the thing it's going to be the tasting room with we'll a bar right here and we'll have people coming in and he he looks at me he goes nobody's gonna fucking come in here to drink beer like what are you crazy and i was like you watch you watch people will do it <laughs> i love it and they did and they, yeah, they did yeah so um you know anyone who knows new trail I think first and foremost, think of IPAs and in particular, hazy IPAs. I mean, just watching us sip right now, I'm drinking Shades. Chris is drinking Hammock. You're drinking Broken Heels, three hazy IPAs that you have, that you've created. Um, can you talk a little bit about your journey specific to the IPA? Um, where did your love for that style first start? And how have you brought that love for the style to your brewery? That's a really good question. So Mike, can I add an element there? Can you also explain to the listeners who might not, they might've heard of IPA before, but not actually know what, like what constitutes an IPA? As far as like stylistically, what constitutes an IPA? Yeah. Oh, I definitely have a pedestal to die upon that. So, um, so my journey with IPA uh, be begins probably with victory with hot devil which is uh i'd say stylistically like a a very old school west coast ipa at least by modern standards uh and i i have to say that i probably hated my first one like most people back then back then when they when they drank west coast ipa it's super bitter it's got a little bit of like pine and maybe some light citrus aromatics to it but i i would say it's very resiny in that in that time period for IPAs, I might have been 19, 20 years old at the time when I first started trying to get into IPA. And very much like coffee, over time you you sort of become accustomed to the bitterness of it. But my specific journey with brewing IPA didn't really start. I never really home brewed IPA. It wasn't a style that I was overly into at, in that time of my life, but. Um, by the time that I got to rock bottom with Brian, I was very, very enamored with his IPAs. And I think that for the time, for it being 2010 or 2011, he was a little bit ahead of his time with what was happening in the IPA world. So at the time, and we were going through what a lot of us call the IBU wars. So, um, the idea was that we were going to make more bitter IPAs than the next guy. And that was when like, was it ruination or, um, yeah, it was ruination from ruination. Uh, from Stone. Yeah. Yeah. That was like a hundred IBUs or whatever. Yep. Yeah. So that was like right around that time when I was going to rock bottom, these guys were just like 
face fucking you with with resin and bitterness like just like <laughs> puckeringly bitter stuff and brian's approach to ipa was a little bit different he was like i like bitter but i also really love this um these aromatics from these new hops that are that are really popular becoming popular right now and at the time there was maybe two thousand three thousand breweries in the country so like simcoe and citra and mosaic were like these really sexy new hops at that time or amarillo was sort of i guess starting to become i guess it was probably already relatively popular at that point but either way he made a um he made a beer called sub-zero i almost lost it but i but i have it which was an all simcoe uh all simcoe ipa and it might have been like i don't know 50 40 50 ibus but the dry hop was all simcoe and there was like a bunch of kettle editions and some you know whirlpool editions that were entirely simcoe and it had this like super like cat piss bo in the best way smell and flavor to it in the best way in the best way i mean i, I don't know how else to describe sim old school simcoe to people that don't know old school simcoe but that's how like we used to describe simcoe to each other it's like it was super cat pissy wasn't it great so chris chris you're a cat guy so when you want to really get a sense of what old school simcoe smells yeah. like just yeah, go over and smell yeah. the cat's litter box. Yeah, go run, go run a mile, and then walk into wherever you keep your cat litter box, and that's like the best smell. <laughs> that best selling smelling Simcoe. So he made this this beer called Sub Zero with with all these this these beautiful cat pissy uh, Simcoe hops, and um, I was enamored with it. And I mean, at the time for a fifteen barrel batch, it was. 11 pounds of dry hop at the time which i mean was a lot back then to, to dry hop 15 barrels but i mean like by modern standards it wouldn't even you wouldn't even call it a dry hopped beer because it was less than a pound per barrel of hops in the dry hop i mean it was so so little compared to what we now have in in modern hazy ipa so i you know i i convinced brian to um let me make my own recipe and I wanted to do this like really like um, blonde, clear, dry hopped IPA that was like low in bitterness. And the beer was called Backdraft. And I can't for the life of me remember what hops were in it, but I'm sure it was like Simcoe, Centennial and Chinook, like it, that just of that that era of what we would have ever had available in that time. And I might've been able to, I might've been allowed to dry hop it with 11 pounds of dry hops. And Brian was just so, so influential to the way that I was approaching IPA. Cause he was like making these really bitter or I'd say moderately bitter, very bitter compared to modern standards, but moderately bitter for those, for that time IPAs. And I wanted to make this like super clean, crisp, lightly bitter, more aromatic driven IPA and I got to do it. So fast forward a few years, IPAs like uh, Hetty Topper are, are really, really present. And I'm at, um, I'm at Kane at the time and Head High uh, is his flagship IPA. That's a, that's a, uh, it's another kind of standard East coast, I'll call it IPA uh, that was a little bit more aromatic driven. I believe it was like Citra, Cascade, Centennial, and Chinook. 
if I if I'm remembering that recipe correctly. And um, it was still like kind of amber, amber adjacent, I'll say like it wasn't entirely, entirely brown. It wasn't entirely gold, um, but it was still very bitter. It was still like 50 or so IBU, but very, very clear at the time. And uh, I was really enamored with Tired Hands at the time because Tired Hands had just opened maybe the year or two prior and they were releasing their first batches of like Mago Tago or um, shit, what was that beer called? The, the Light That Spills Out of the Hole in Your Head, which was, I, I believe, the, is that the Clementine IPA? Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And there was batches of Hop Hands and Alien Church was probably already brewed at that point. Either way, John, who was the brewer at the time at, at the cafe, came up to visit me and um, he was sharing all these beers with me. And I'm like, just like so enamored with this idea that IPA can be hazy or that he can call this beer that I'm drinking IPA. Because first off, it's blonde, it's super aromatic, and there's like less bitterness than, than what I'm producing, but it's still like quenchingly bitter. It still makes you want to drink more because you you want to drink more of it and um he sort of goes over the process with me i was like wow that's crazy and then at the same time like treehouse trillium and all these like new england guys are doing the same thing but they're calling it new england ipa and we're down here calling it hazy ipa new england ipa was even less bitter it was like just like orange juice like what, what is it julius and green and all those beers were were just like super super aromatic and and, and juicy and we're down here like drinking this like moderately bitter, very aromatic, still kind of like West Coast adjacent with the hops. Like it still has like a solid pine characteristic to it. So uh, I enter Tired Hands. We, we do what we do at Tired Hands. We, we blow the, the fucking world up with, with hazy IPA and cans and releases, and milkshake IPAs. And I leave there and I, I just realized that like, it was a whirlwind there, but I realized that there's like very two distinct styles, in my opinion, in, in this like hazy IPA category. I think there's New England IPA and there's hazy IPA. New England IPA is juice. It is hoppy blonde ale. It's less than 20 IBUs. And then like the, the beer that, that we make at New Trail is definitively hazy IPA. It's 30 to 40, uh, 30 to 50 IBUs. There's definitely kettle additions. And there's still that like really, really beautiful aromatics that you can get from that New England style, but it's still an IPA. So I, I, I think I answered all your questions in my rambling there. I think you did. Now, this is super interesting. And you're a great person to ask these questions to. Um, I have a couple of rapid fire uh, comments to the listeners and then also questions for you. Sure. Uh, so a reminder to the listeners that uh, you might have heard in a previous episode, IBUs, international bitterness units, higher the number, the more bitter the beer. That was a really interesting explanation. I've never heard the distinction between hazy and New England broken down so clearly like that, which was cool. And, I mean, and it's just my opinion, like the, the, the governing body of, um, of beer styles, the uh, BJCP identifies them under one category but I personally feel very, very different about that category. Um, yeah. And I can see why I think it's a useful distinction to make. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the quick explanation you mentioned whirlpool dry hop and adding hops during kettling, all of those, the easiest explanation to the listeners and to me 
uh, is just that has to do with when you add the hops in the process. Exactly. So the so the earlier in the boil time, the um, the more bitterness you're likely to get based off of there's lots of sciencey things that that can affect it. But ultimately, what you need to know is that hops are measured by their alpha acids. So the higher the alpha acid in the hop, the more likely it is to give off bitterness. So the earlier that you take a high alpha acid hop in your boil time, in your 60, 90, 75 minute boil, whatever it is, <laughs> the more likely you are to get bitterness units left behind or bitterness left behind in that beer. Uh, okay, gotcha. So and then... in theory, a Whirlpool, a Whirlpool edition only leads a little bit of bitterness into the beer, but this like- right uh, at the end. Exactly, the whirlpool is at the end of the the uh, the brewing the physical brewing process before it goes into fermentation to to um, to become beer. So cool. a dry hop is going to eat, leave even less. Okay, cool. And then final two rapid fire things. Uh, the first, you mentioned that at the time of your starting working brewing brewing, there were about three thousand breweries in the nation. Off uh, pre recording. You mentioned to us what that number is, but I think the listeners would be curious now. Uh, can you share with folks how many breweries there are now? Yeah, we're approaching 10,000. I can get you a pretty solid and this number. This is in the span wanted. of like 10, uh, 11 14 years, 12 years, years yeah. Yeah, 12, yeah, 12 ish years. Cool. Um, so that goes back to we've been talking about like the explosion of the beer industry. Uh, and then I want to um, highlight. You mentioned milk, milkshake IPAs a little bit briefly there. I think you might be doing yourself a little bit like uh, being a little too humble there because you were instrumental in the creation of that as kind of a, a recognized genre. Can you tell people a little bit about what is exactly a milkshake IPA? Yeah, so a milkshake IPA is another kind of like subcategory of this ambiguous, hazy New England IPA style. Um, generally, uh, a milkshake IPA is a hazy IPA, but it has the addition of uh, lactose, which is a milk sugar, uh, vanilla, and some sort of fruit, but it's still treated like an IPA through the entire process. So it still receives the whatever the, the kettle additions are, and it still receives a dry hop. My, um, my part in milkshake IPA is that Tired Hands was, as far as most people we'll say Tired Hands was the first brewery in the country to produce a milkshake IPA. And I was a brewer at Tired Hands at that time. So I was, I was in the room as it was happening. And can you talk a little bit about like, did you, when everyone was in that room now on the polo had already been doing it a bit over in Europe and but, collaborated with them. And I guess the first one was the OG is strawberry milkshake IPA. And can you talk a little bit about what was going on? Did you think at the time that this was, yes, this is going to catch on? Or was it still a little bit of like, uh, let's see what happens. And and then you obviously see how it blew up. No, I mean, my um, my time at Tired Hands uh, was a, a really interesting time for the company as it relates to innovation, because Tired Hands was pushing the boundaries at this time with um, the styles and types of things that they were doing like Sam from Dogfish was was doing zany zany stuff with uh 
ancient ales and different types of fruits. And at the time you might've had like a, was it, it was stone that um, fermented the beer based off the culture of uh, Greg's beard. Right. Oh, yeah. um, and tired hands was just like doing just weird stuff. It was, I mean, it was just, it's part of the mission statement. It was strange and beautiful, just regurgitating. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, we were putting like mushrooms in beer. We were like taking um, invasive species plants, like knotweed and stuff like that. So like, to me, it was just another day in the office, to be quite honest. Like the, the story, the, the story behind Milkshake IPA, which has unabashedly been told before, was that it was a big middle finger to the to the Alstrom brothers um, from Beer Advocate. They um they had come to the the cafe and they were upset. They were they were intoxicated at the time, and I wasn't in the room when when this all happened. But they um they were denied service because they were like very 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 drunk, and um they wrote a, a really nasty review about hop hands and they said in the in the review fuck this milkshake ipa bullshit or something something along the, those lines and uh gene was personally offended by it and he said you know what i'll fucking show you i'll make a milkshake ipa and that was that was where milkshake ipa came from now you know i wasn't a part of that that part of the story it was just, that that is me recanting the story of of him to <laughs> telling me the story very concise right and there was a lot more colorful language oh i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> for anyone who is familiar with that situation yeah um so we we've talked about uh the hazy versus new england your and and milkshake ipas and now you're in New Trail and it's your place. I mean, you're a partner and you're the head brewer, head of brewing operations, churning out a lot. And, and for the listeners, anyone who is super familiar with New Trail, one of my favorite beers from you, which I love the new can art for is Lazy River Pills. It's a gold medal winner and you just cracked into it. This I literally is, just cracked yeah. it. It wasn't planned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Lazy River Pills, which is amazing because it's in 12 packs now. These beautiful new uh, can art. Um, it's a gold medal winner at Gabfa for the Pilsners. A beautiful dry hot little Pilsner. Amazing beer. But a, a lot of um, your notoriety has come from hazy IPAs. And I'll keep that word hazy. You used it. It's on your cans. Um Talk about your love for the style or not love and how you have gone about creating your recipes because a lot of people, like there are, there are people who talk about the style and say they're all the same. How do you um, differentiate between your hazy IPAs? How much, how hard is it to do that? And how exciting is it to have that challenge? Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the first things I say to everybody that I, I train at our tasting room or for our staff, you know, I'm, oftentimes when I'm training a bartender or somebody in the tasting room, they're not, um, they're, they don't have a craftier background. So I'm sort of building, building the building blocks. And the first thing I'll ask them to do is to taste, uh, taste an IPA and describe it to me. And the first word I, every time, without a doubt, is that this is hoppy. And I love to throw it right back in their face, not, not in a mean way, but just to kind of like open their eyes. I said, how would you describe wine? And they look at me funny and I, and I say, would you describe it as grapey? I'm like, like, they're like, oh, I get it. Like hops, hops are a part of, of what makes, what makes this IPA, right? Like it, it you know, it's like saying that, uh, 
any anything has the ingredient in it like yeah of course it has that but like what you know fuck that word what what's the next thing that, that you're tasting on it you know do you taste pineapple do you taste orange citrus papaya so you can approach ipa um from that when you can approach ipa from that thirty thousand foot view you can really start to to play with um a lot of different flavors and there's a ton of creativity in it i mean I'm focusing on hops in IPA because it's an important component to it. But like the, the thing that sort of is the backbone of what makes it hazy is actually it's grain grain bill and in, in actually making the liquid like hazy IPAs themselves generally are hazy, but they also um, are fluffy. Like we, we describe them as like very fluffy or full mouthfeel, which sort of helps counterbalance that, that bitterness that I was talking about. So that full mouthfeel, can can balance the way that that your your palate's going to perceive um, the bitterness and the other flavor components to it. So like you can use uh, rye, let's say, and rye rye will enhance some of the spice characters in in hot. You know, well rye itself is kind of peppery, spicy, but if paired with a sharp, diesely or um, piney hop it can make it be very very sharp whereas like if you're using oats or wheat in that that grain bill it's more likely gonna dull and make it a little bit like a like fluffy soft and the grain bill as someone who has very little but like some experience doing home brewing uh has to do with kind of it's almost like when you're making tea uh, is like the start of a brewing home brewing process, at least like you take a, kind of a bag of grain uh, and you dip it in water and you almost steep it like tea. Is that the grain bill is like what's in that bag? What's that in that bag? Of- yeah. From a home brewing perspective, I describe it as oatmeal is more more the commercial um, way to look at at the brewing process. So we take um, uncracked malted barley and we crack it and send it through a mill and then as it's entering the vessel, it's being shot with very, very hot water to then make it, it looks just like oatmeal. Like you could pick it up with your hands. There, there's liquid around, it'd be like soupy oatmeal, I guess. There's liquid around it, but assuming that you could touch something that's 160 degrees, you could literally just pick it up and hold it in your hands. Now, anyone who looks at your the hops that you use in your beers, notice that you use a wide variety of hops. For you as a brewer, what hop specifically allows you to be the most expressive with your hazy IPAs? It's a really good question. Um, it's a very good question. I use uh, I use Citra a lot. Citra, I think um, Citra is a beautiful hop, um, and I can go down a little bit more of the rabbit hole of like hop selection, like we were talking in the in the pre recording in a little bit, but. Um, I have this affinity for Citra because I think it's like one of the perfect IPA hops, but there's very few hops that in a modern era really, really excite me. But one of the ones that's exciting me a lot right now is Talus. Talus is, um, a newer hop. It was, uh, it was, uh, released with a name, two years ago one year ago now i i can't quite remember but it's kind of like pina colada and a hop so it kind of is kind of like this like little bit of salt that you can throw on something and all of a sudden it has a lot of tropical notes to it 
but I'll, I'll kind of back up and, and talk about my approach to, to hops. So uh, every year I, I travel to uh, the Pacific Northwest, to the Yakima Valley, where um, most hops are grown in America. And I, I, um, I go there and I, I'm contracting the hops that I'm going to purchase for that year. Now I contract about, excuse me, um, I contract about 80% of the hops that I actually need for the year because I, I do like to experiment and see what's out there. And I don't necessarily want to be held to, to say that I need to buy this item. So I'm saying we're going to buy, for lack of a better example, I'm going to buy 100 pounds of this one hop and I'm going to buy 50 pounds of this and 20 pounds of this. Now I'm buying much, much larger quantities and buying hundreds of thousands of pounds of hops, I think. Yeah. And um, I'm saying I'm going to buy 100 pounds of Citra. And I, when I go there, they present me 10 different samples, let's say, of different acreages where Citra was picked. And they say, this is lot number one, this is lot number two, this is lot number three, et cetera. Which one do you like? And which one, which one accentuates um, the, the flavors that, that you want to use in your IPA? So I can, I can go through those 10 different lots and I can say, I really like number two and number seven, um, but I didn't like any of the rest. And I say, okay, keep two and seven. Here's three more that are similar to two and seven. So it's like, all right, two, seven, number 11, 12, and 13. And I can say, okay, I don't like 11, 12, and 13. I really like number two or seven. So then I can kind of play against, you know, just feeling, smelling, holding the hops and i say okay number two's number two's the the citra that we're going to use this year and they'll they'll allocate the whatever amount of poundage i said that i was going to buy of citra from that lot to me now would um, there be would there be certain lots that would that would be better for citra working alone like hammock and would there be better lots for citra working as a member of a team like shades it's a good question um so I use other hops to do that work for me. So like I'll use Citra alone in a beer like Hammock, which is a full Citra IPA um, because I really like our Citra. I said, this is, this is the best Citra that I found. And this is, this is the ode to that hop, but I'll use hops like uh, Mosaic or Equinot or Simcoe or Amarillo. Um, Centennial is really good for it for, for that. Just like, base level hop, citrus, pine, grapefruit flavor that I think a lot of the Pacific Northwest hops use. So that's all very fascinating. So like, yeah, let me back up a, a step there. So like the dry hop itself is where all the aroma or not all the aroma, but where a lot of aroma is driven from in, in producing beer. The whirlpool or the kettle additions themselves—they add bitterness, but they also add the like the flavor. What like sticks on your tongue is more from those those hops, which in in the kettle because they're um, boiled, they don't have as strong of a uh, flavor. I guess like it sort of has that like I'm sort of like 
talking out both sides of my mouth, but like it has that like base level hoppy flavor. Like that, that's what like people when they describe it as hoppy, that's what they're that's what they're describing. That the like, grapey flavor. Yeah, yeah that grapey, <laughs> that grapey flavor. It's coming like like wine. Why, yes, all wine is grapey. Yes, all IPAs are hoppy. So it doesn't necessarily matter as much what you use, in my opinion, in the kettle because it's not it's not adding. If you're gonna dry hop the fuck out of it, it's not going to add as much to it. So you right. can use other hops to make those flavors now if you're gonna experiment with it you can find hops that do it better than others that can leave your tongue a little bit more piney or a little bit more citrusy or a little bit more tropical but i think that in hazy ipa or in new england new england ipa a lot of the flavor and a lot of the aroma is totally through that first that first lifting of the glass to to itself I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, you know, I, I sent a little message to Chris as this was going on. I had opened a can of Bissell Brothers uh, industry versus inferiority. And I sent him a message saying it's straight up weed. Like, it, it, yeah, like weed. the smell yeah, and the flavor is straight up weed, which is yeah. a, which is a, such a pleasant, like dank um, flavor yep. and aroma is very common in IPA and another one, like you can go the tropical way, you go the dank way, you go the bitter way, all those ways are great. And it's always good to get a beer that's dedicated specifically towards one of those. Um, we talked a little bit off uh, recording about um, marketing of IPAs. You know, sure. you, you are hazy and it says hazy on all of your cans, which is very much appreciated because the consumer knows when they go in, this is a hazy IPA. When I pour this into a glass, if I pour this into a glass, it's going to be opaque and your beers never disappoint. They are what they say they are. And New England IPA is the same way. I think people expect the same thing. If it says any IPA or New England IPA on there, they expect an opaque beer. It, from a brewing standpoint, is that your goal? When you use those words, is it very specific? And are you if you brewed a beer that didn't end up as hazy as you had anticipated, would you rip that word from the can? Would you rebrand it? How do you go about managing those words when there's an expectation from the consumer that comes along with it? Yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely released a beer that's been hazy when I've held it, but by the time it got to the consumer, it's clarified beer beers pickle sometimes. Um, especially when you when you don't have all the bells and whistles that the big guys do, it's harder harder to control some things. So there, it's definitely happened to me where I've I've said this beer this beer is hazy, and by the time I got to the consumer, it, it's been clear. I've d done a lot of research and and work towards not ever having that happen again. But um, we use hazy IPA as a as a term because. I, I think I spelled it out earlier. I'm obviously a, I rambled for 15 minutes about about my IPA story. Like I, I IPA hazy IPA to me is is personal. It's like that that is what we make. I, you know, it's not. I I was in the room when it happened with milkshake IPA, but you know, Tired Hands itself was one of the earliest innovators of hazy IPA in America. You know, and I. And I'll, I even date back to and, and, and pointing back to Brian McConnell to, to Sub-Zero and my time at Rock Bottom that he was like kind of like going counterculture on the idea of these IBU wars and moving towards less bitterness, more aromatics. IPA for me has always been, I guess, hazy IPAs is where my journey, I'm not going to say has ended, but it, it's, it led me to and onto that same path. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think as brewers and breweries, 
build their profile hazy ipas they get a big following i mean there was like a solid like- absolutely no i mean it, it it itself haze is meaning something like my mom like i said she was a staunch course light drinker but my mom drinks hazy ipa too like she anybody hazy ipa because of its softer bitterness and more approachable aromatics and flavor has become very very attainable to people that want to try craft beer um whereas like west coast ipa or what we used to just call ipa when i was entering the industry was not it's super bitter it's like drinking your first coffee it's like you know it's not it's not a pleasant experience for the first person for the first time you have it right and you know you you guys uh new trail um you've gotten a lot of notoriety for your hazy ipas i mean for a long period of time anyone who would go on the breweries of pa facebook page they would see countless pictures of the newest new trail double ipa new trail was the and still is very much the hot uh or one of the hot hazy ipa producers it puts a lot of it puts you guys under the microscope and especially considering what's going on in the beer industry over the last like year, a little bit over a year now, the craft beer industry has had a bit of a moment and not necessarily in the most positive way. Um, you know, there's been a lot of issues coming up um, about misogyny and sexism and racism within the industry. Um, and as a brewery that's gained a lot of notoriety, you know, everyone's going to look to the brewers that have gained that notoriety to see what they're doing. How have you created a more, how have you created a very welcoming space, workplace for your staff, but also for your patrons, you know, knowing what's going on in the industry and even without knowing what's going on, what importance is that for you and how have you put your mark on that? That's a great question. So I, um, I decided when when I came to New Trail that I, I wanted to take a, a different stance on um, workplace culture and management than what I had experienced in the past and in, in my uh, my brewing career. And I sort of landed on this idea that um, I'm hiring adults and I want to treat them like adults. So. I just want to treat them. I want to treat everybody the way that I, I want to be treated. And I, I wanted to be treated as an equal. So I try to hire the best people that I can for the job that I'm hiring for. Or if I see potential in somebody, I want to give them an opportunity for it. So like we at, we at New Trail, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 employees total with our sales team. And my marketing guy's going to kill me for not knowing off the top of my head but i want to say that there's in salaried employees we have at least let me count it out seven seven women that work for us and of those seven women we consider four or five of the managers so of my management team of 10 people or so half of it is women so and that, that's just solely based on finding the best people for the job that we're hiring for. It's not, I'm not saying that I'm going to hire somebody. I'm not looking specifically for a demographic or a gender or whatever. I just want to, you know, if I want to hire a, a tasting room manager, I want to hire the best tasting room manager. If I want to hire a brewer, I want to hire the best brewer. If I want to hire a marketer, I want to buy, I want to hire the best marketer, salesperson, yada, yada, yada. So we offer and treat our, our employees like real people, you know, like if, uh, 
there's not really a PTO policy for us. I'm not saying it's unlimited PTO, but like if uh, you have vacation planned and something happens in your life, your mom, your dad gets cancer and you got to take them to treatments, then you, you know, go do that. Like take your vacation, take your personal time, recharge, but also like do the thing that is what's important to, to you, to your family. You know, yeah, we definitely appreciate that. Uh, you know, as we've, as our listeners know, this has been a big focus for us and it's always enlightening for us to see how different breweries are handling different situations. And we really appreciate you sharing with us how you go about your business. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. And it doesn't go unnoticed too of the environmental impact that you're looking to have by partnering with and donating to state parks. Um, and I think that goes a long way that each brewery part of like cultural responsiveness is that you're responding to the culture of a certain area. And so Williamsport has a unique background, a unique history. It's uniquely situated in touch with nature. Uh, and so it seems like you're tapping into that a bit with like the direction of new trail, which is super cool. Um, so yeah, I think Mike, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, and we really appreciate everything you've shared. This has been super like informative on a practical level about like IPAs and stuff, but also interesting to get to know you and your pathway. Um, so, uh, I just want to say thanks for joining us and that we loved having you. Absolutely. If I could do one more shameless plug, Please. I'm sorry. Please, you do it. So we're uh, we're working towards. Uh, you, you sort of sparked my memory. We're you're talking about the Pennsylvania Parks and Forests. We're working towards. Uh, there's going to be a, a new core beer for us. It's going to be released um, in the fall. Uh, it's going to be a more West Coast driven IPA, a crisp IPA called Replenish, and a dollar from every case that is sold of that beer is going to go towards uh, planting new growth of uh, trees within uh, Pennsylvania. So that that's another, you know, putting our, our money where our mouth is on, or yeah, yeah, I said that right this time. <laughs> you got it right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, putting it towards um, just future generations and making sure that, that people have uh, the, outdoors and, and, and recreation to, to, um, go enjoy. So, and that's going to be a, uh, co-partnership again with, uh, the Pennsylvania Parks and Forest Foundation. So it's going to be both the state parks series that we're going to do four to six times a year, but we're, we're planning on doing a full year round IPA. That's totally about replenishing, uh, growth in Pennsylvania. Oh, heck yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And awesome. I, that was my mistake. I, and blurring that I'm at the other end of an empty hammock can now, which yeah, for those right. who don't know is nine percent. Nine percent. I yeah. forgot if that was pre-recording or, or on. That I'm was pre-recording. Yeah. No, <laughs> I was like, they like clicked. I was like, ding. Oh yeah. I, was, I said I was talking about that. <laughs> uh, well, Mike, thank you again uh, for joining us. This has been a real, real awesome time. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Matt, I just did some learning. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, you drink IPA after IPA, you think you know something, you talk to brewers, you think you know something, and then you actually sit down and think about questions that kind of dive in deeper, and you get these answers that you didn't expect, and, you know, like, 
the thing that was most interesting to me is how he differentiates between hazy and New England IPA and how he purposely uses the word hazy for his beers. Um, to me, that's just because I have always noticed that in the beers, he always says hazy IPA or hazy double. Um, and to me, like that really clears up a lot of things for the consumer and his beers are hazy and that's what he does. And, you know, also just a really interesting interview. And I love how candid he is. Um, that's, you know, he, he's the, the guy you want to brew your beer and you want to have the beer with. I mean, do you get more candid than calling a hop cat piss or <laughs> having a, a, an unapologetic beer burp? Uh, actually, you might have apologized. The apology yeah. doesn't matter. The unabashed beer burp was yeah. signature move right there. It really is. And, you know, uh, you know, I think we should do more of these uh, deep dives into styles because, you know, like I said, you think you know it, but you don't. And then you learn something. And then now when you're drinking your IPAs, there's it becomes more meaningful. I think people, when they're drinking like a Saison and tasting the expression in a beer like that, or, um, or like a really rich barrel-aged stout, there is like this expression that I don't think people necessarily think about when they're drinking an IPA, but that expression is there. And now when you know more about it and know like the different flavor profiles behind a hop, whether it's, you know, bursting with, you know, pineapple notes or whether it's bursting with catfish notes, like you can now appreciate, you can now appreciate the IPA for more than just being like a juicy, bitter experience or a piney or, or whatever it is, a resiny or citrusy you can now really think about what are you tasting? You know, what do you, what do you get when you drink this? And I think that as a beer drinker, it's exciting every time you take a sip of beer to really think about the artistry, the craftsmanship that goes into that beer. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned the word uh, bitterness there. It was, uh, we've now heard, there's been a few things that have carried through various episodes. One being year of the lager, obviously. Another being lawnmower beers, hashtag mm -hmm. iconic. And then the IBU Wars was something that I had never heard of prior to hosting this podcast. And then several folks had mentioned that in that exact phrasing. And so did he. So I think whenever we start our Patreon and get some stickers out there to folks, uh, we should do a special little segment on just the IBU Wars themselves. And I would love to hear from listeners too about what are some of the things you learned from this episode? What are things you want to learn more about? Do you want more style episodes? Is that a cool direction to go? Um, let us know. And also uh, keep doing the social media things. Thank you to everybody who follows and interacts uh, with us there at Beer People Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, because it, in addition to being fun for us to interact with you in that way, it's also a way to spread the word. And then when people find the podcast, there's just some mental thing that happens, I think, when folks see like, oh, there's comments on the page or, oh, there's followers to this. This is a legitimate thing that it's or, not. Yeah. Or, or like give us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Yeah. When you give us a review and you write something, um, people see that it's not just like the friends of those that are listening. And right. even, or even, even if it is, those friends are going out of their way to leave a, a really nice comment. Those comments help, they help us. And it also helps keep the conversation rolling. 
Um, you know, I have conversations with people. What podcast you listen to? I've had that conversation so many times. Please give us a shout out, especially if you know if you have friends who are into beer. You know, it's it's okay to bring us up. Please do, and you know, because then they'll start listening. It gives you something to talk about, and hopefully, we get a conversation started for you that is independent of our um, podcast. And that's really what we're going for. Keep the conversations continuing and um yeah the more people who can talk about not just beer but also the issues of diversity equity and inclusion in the beer industry the better so absolutely if those social medias aren't enough then also you can hit us up at beerpeople.xyz is our website that i haven't shouted out in a while so keep tuning in we will talk to you soon cheers